We are facing a mental health crisis, and it's more important than ever to have access to the support we need. That's why I'm grateful for BetterHelp, the largest online counseling platform in the world. BetterHelp is changing the way people get help with life challenges by providing convenient, discreet, and affordable access to licensed therapists. With BetterHelp, professional counseling is available anytime, anywhere from your smartphone, computer, or tablet. If you're looking for support, sign up today at BetterHelp.com. Use the promo code SOLVINGHEALTHCARE to get 10% off sign-up fees. That's BetterHelp.com, promo code SOLVINGHEALTHCARE. COVID has affected us all, and with all the negativity surrounding it, it's often hard to find the positive. One of the blessings it has given us is the opportunity to build an avenue for creating change, starting right here in our community. Discussing topics that affect us most, such as racism in healthcare, maintaining a positive mindset, creating change, the importance of advocacy, and the many lessons we have all learned from COVID. If you or your organization are interested in speaking engagements, send a message to quadcast99 at gmail.com, reach out on Facebook at Quadcast, or online at drquadjo.ca. Welcome to Solving Healthcare. I'm Quadjo Karamante. I'm an ICU and palliative care physician here in Ottawa and the founder of Resource Optimization Network. We are on a mission to transform healthcare in Canada. I'm going to talk with physicians, nurses, administrators, patients, and their families because inefficiencies, overwork, and overcrowding affects us all. I believe it's time for a better healthcare system that's more cost-effective, dignified, and just for everyone involved. Quarkcast Nation, we are bringing back one of my favorite guests. I don't know if you know this, Zena, but you were in my top five because of how exciting you were in terms of pointing out the future of healthcare and where we could go. Like that episode we did previously was so joyous and, and gave me hopes and aspirations. But we had to have you back on the show. So welcome back, Zena. Thanks for having me. It's been a while. It's been a while. Lots of change. Like you're like you're changing the world. You're working with Deloitte now. You obviously you're still working with uh, Rotman, but also an advisor with Teladoc Health. So I can't read my own writing. Um, what when we when we started chatting earlier, I asked you, "What are you excited about these days?" And I, I want to hear hear it again. Like what, what's what's twisting your crank these days when it comes to healthcare and innovation? I mean, if I have to be honest. In Canada, there's not much that gets me excited. There's a few pockets and we can get into them. But I think globally, as a futurist, my job is to constantly sense and scan and mine and look for signals and then translate that into choices we're making here in Canada. Um, I feel like three things, you know, get me a bit excited that all the stuff we've been talking about, that the direction things will go in health and care are starting to really materialize. Uh, So one, this idea that there's these people called patients and um, I don't know, you know, we should design everything around um, them. <laughs> like it sounds right, but that's not really how we've been doing things. And I think that's becoming pretty much mainstream. I just I just had an event, for example, a, a whole day workshop to design a primary care model of the future in Montreal uh, canceled because they couldn't get enough patient co-designers to be part of our workshop. I'm like, Exactly. Right. Like, so we're just not going to do that anymore. Um, so that's good. I think the second is um, 
The business model of healthcare has been broken for about 40 years. It just doesn't work. It doesn't serve. And we've been trying to just keep perpetuating a broken business model, which when your business model doesn't work, you have two options. You redo it or you go out of business. I would suggest we are out of business in healthcare, particularly in Canada. When people, you know, 6 million people don't have a doctor, we're waiting two years for surgeries, et cetera, et cetera. That's out of business. We can't deliver. So finally, I think there is uh, appetite and maybe a little bit of skill sets to rebase the business model, to rethink all aspects of the care model, the payment model. So that's exciting. And then finally, I think just the tech is starting to come to life. Pretty basic tech that we don't need to be too fancy, but it's actually starting to deliver on some of the um, the benefits we've all seen as society gets digitized. So that, those are my three patients, business models and tech. <laughs> I'm, I must say, Zaina, the patients front and center, I think sometimes we, I've seen it too often where we don't get their input in design of research, design of infrastructure, design of how we operate. And this is something that actually through the show has become more, I've become more enlightened. Like when you bring somebody on as a guest and they talked about their cancer journey, they talk about their experience in, in the ICU as an example, you realize there are gaps that aren't front and center. So not having that perspective is you're, you're blind as far as I'm concerned. Like it, it's so, yeah, it's, it's so also, important. In my view, unethical. Right, you're, this is a public good that um, my taxes and your taxes and your listeners' taxes are financing. That was the social contract, you know. We decided, and shame on us if we're going to allow people to deliver that good in a way that actually isn't delivering the results that you know we're paying a very high premium for. You know, so it's just uh, it's so we waste so much doing what you know people. Um, far away from the patient think is the right thing based on ideology or whatever. Um, what's the point, right? Yeah. <laughs> the care you experience is the care you get, whatever you define as that experience. And, and I come, I, I feel like I can say this cause I'm part of the club. Like, I feel like we're a part of a group that always thinks we know better. Like we yeah. think we, we have all the answers and it's, it's almost by design too. like you're, you're, there's a lot of shame in medicine, at least old school medicine where you know if you're vulnerable or wrong it's not it's not awesome so i, I think we kind of breed this group that feels like we got to be right all the time and and not seek help at and but in this case i like the the perspective of almost saying like it's unethical not to have that voice at the table and i must say though I'm sure you'd feel the same way. It's way better than it was 10 years ago. Like I, I oh, do. Yeah. yeah. Like I think this is where we are actually seeing the light a little bit. And I'd say linked to that, which to me is a, is a flavor of um, designing this, you know, these services for the people who have the biggest stake in them um, or with the people with the, is, is just the, the mainstreamization, if that's a word of, you know, let's call it equity deserving populations I don't like the acronyms DEI, IDEA, and blah, 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 but BIPOC. But like that was kind of chirped about before, like we paid lift service, we always said, but really now it's becoming part of the DNA, the infrastructure, the model. Like it's not just a thing. To to me, that's just an offshoot of, um, you know, everyone's starting to figure out a bit, at least more on balance, 
that this is about the people who get our services, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, for whatever their needs are. And and as you said, invested invested tons to be able to uh, to, to to ensure that they're getting adequate, high quality care. I I'm curious before jumping into the business one because that to me is a meat. Is there any examples that come to mind that either that you you've worked with directly where we have made patients front and center? I mean, there's a few examples. So, you know, in terms of design of services, making decisions about allocation of resources and those kinds of things, I'd say we've moved miles on Indigenous health. You know, it's it's so encouraging to me that there are now, you know, pots of money for, you know, Indigenous-led design of whatever, new models of care, new programs, et cetera. And it's like literally run by our Indigenous um, uh, friends and colleagues. And then there's just a support role for us settlers, if you will, uh, that, you know, disproportionate uh, resources are going there. Uh, and, um, and I just think a few more of those and we'll have a tipping point of uh, resolving, I think, some some longstanding issues. I think on um, also uh, racialized populations, particularly where we're realizing, you know, the intersections of race and income and all the other um, marginalities, um, like just a lot more attention onto that being front and center in design than ever before, right? So that's kind of one at the core. And then the other, what I'm seeing, and I'm, I'm sure you are, in kind of like this example I just gave of this workshop getting canceled because we couldn't we couldn't get the timing to work with patient co-designers is, um, you know, like we're seeing, you know, I don't know what you, what you call them, patients who have a way to convey their experience that will connect to people front and center stage, right? Opening the CMA summit, you know, last week on every panel, co-designing research abstracts and studies and trials. Um, it's like the infrastructure to do that's just becoming normal, which I think uh, is is great to see. Oh, I forgot you. you were, so you were at that uh, summit? Just virtually. Oh, right on. Yeah, there were some big names there. And I was working in the ICU that week, so I, I wasn't able to to, to come by but yeah that's it's 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 i like what you, how you frame it too like it's the opportunity to tell stories has become more and more front and center you, you yeah. see it at the conferences you see it on even on campaigns on social media where 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 loved ones or patients are expressing what their experience is like and it's absolutely i eye-opening. I, I often give the example of a colleague of mine or friend. She's a, one of my best friends. Uh, her son had, uh, when he was eight months old, died, diagnosed with cancer and was getting treatment for that. And there was a Sunday where, you know, you often you're short-staffed and the weekend crew was just trying to get through rounds. And she got accustomed to getting that update, even if it was a couple minutes. But that morning they didn't stop by and, and give the update, even though everything was fine. And how much that affected her experience, her her um, ability to cope. It's something that hasn't left me. You know, it's like you, you got your 
Hey, at the time, eight month old. He's now thirteen. He's good for him. Yeah, healthy and glorious. Stuff, mm-hmm. Henri. Uh, and but yeah, it's something that's never left me because I don't want to put that on a patient, right? You don't want to put that burden and that stress when they're already in a in an extremely vulnerable situation. Like we we owe it to our patients and their families to 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 do our best. But um, yeah, so yeah. I, that that really that really sticks with me. But I I gotta say, Zena, like the one thing that got me really thinking, and I think this is I don't know if I don't want to say it's controversial anymore, but the business model argument, the the idea that we this is not sustainable f- from a service perspective where we're we got people as you mentioned waiting forever for elective surgery don't have primary care which is ridiculous and we got an extremely inefficient system in terms of how we like how much money we put in and then what we get out so what is what are you seeing that's working like in terms of there's also you know the, the people get jazzed up about what's what's our ethics and privatization and so forth but i i just want objectively in your opinion what do you what are you seeing that's working so again i don't know that there's much yet in canada because uh dismantling a business model and i know that word might sound very businessy so i'll come back and unpack it but doing that it's kind of our unfinished business it's been needed for 20 30 40 maybe 50 years so it's kind of like climate change you're not going to just fix it overnight um, I, I just, I guess my, what I'm encouraged of is there's finally at least a place to have a conversation to explore and test. So all business model is, right, is, you know, what are we going to do? What are other partners of ours going to do? And how are we all going to make enough um, money to be able to cover whatever is our cost of doing what we do? <laughs> Sometimes covering cost is a nonprofit and you just need to be neutral. Other times you need to generate a margin. Otherwise, your own business model, right, as a partner can't work. Um, that's all business model is. What do we do? What do others do? Uh, you know, and how do we recover our costs? And assuming that what you're doing is adding value on the terms of whatever the you know the customer is that is trying to get that value from you. Um, and that's where you know we've been stuck in um, you know a, you know a pretty fixed business model that was centered around hospitals and doctors. Um, and largely fee for service so pay by the transaction uh, and the touch point and really time sharing or renting you know minutes quadro of your time say like that's the business model so it's kind of a fee for service uh renting time <laughs> of people's professional training um and renting time sharing you know equipment and rooms and beds and you know it's kind of a real estate if you will asset management model uh very industrial era and, uh, and that just won't work anymore it's for so many reasons. And so I think, so what I'm encouraged about is some of the new types of business models. First of all, you know, only do fee-for-service where it absolutely makes sense. There are certain things where, yeah, you just want to get someone's expertise and pay them for that hourly, like you might with a lawyer. But for most things, complex illness, chronic illness, it absolutely makes absolutely no sense because it's high-touch it's not about visits. It's about continuous management. So, um, so changing the payment model, changing the care model and taking, you know, time sharing labor out of that, 
Like it's not about, you know, visits four times a year with your doctor. That's not how you manage comorbid diabetes and hypertension and mental illness, right? Um, so, so those types of things we're starting to see tested and played with. The other one we're starting to see is not fixing a care plan based on, you know, evidence-based guidelines that pretty much apply to the average of the whole population, which means nobody's needs get served. Nobody's needs get served when you apply the evidence that worked on an average. So the ability now to really titrate and tweak and play with the patient for what makes sense for right now for me. And that could change like just like that friend of yours and their son. Today, what I'm wanting in my model might be different from later this afternoon, <laughs> might be different from tomorrow, right? Like we've created all this static infrastructure for an experience that is the most dynamic thing there is, you know? So, so the ability to just tweak up and down, you know, what's in the care model, what's not, how it's paid, all that hyper flexibility, that's, that's the direction new business models are going, including flexibility of who does what, <laughs> <laughs> you know, whether that's a pharmacist doing, you know, the the routine stuff that a doctor used to do, whether that's a, a private agent um, delivering a, a service publicly funded. There's so many mixes of flexibility. Uh, that's that's where things are going to go. Man. OK, so one thing for sure that I've been we've been preaching on big time is this personalized approach. I think my era at least docs that are my age around my age or older, we really got hammered down the evidence-based approach. You, the, the evidence-based approaches are as Zena mentioned, you have a study on thousands of patients. They said, you know, aspirin versus placebo. Yeah. Aspirin for the most will give you, you know, absolute risk of, of reducing your risk of, we'll say, uh, of, of having a heart attack by 1% or whatever. What you don't get a feel of in many of those studies is which, amongst those thousands of patients, which ones benefited the most, which ones benefited the least. And we in medicine often just say, you walk through the door, your no matter what your demographic is, no matter what your socioeconomic situation is, no matter what race you are, this is what's telling us is the best option. And we don't factor in or try and account for some of the, you know, some of the details that might alter that response. And I, I, I love it. Like we, we, we had a guy on the show looking at, uh, genomics to 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 really look at your your ability to respond to food to exercise to different medication. To me, I don't know if you've been diving into this, Zena, but that to me is definitely the future. Yeah, and I mean, even we're going to look back at the genetics, the way we're doing it. You know, like you can metabolize coffee better or not, or you know, pair match it, whatever. All these things, and be like, wow, was that ever crude? Right? Like that is just one piece of your biological signature. Um, it's an important one, but like think of all the other factors, like even just your aspirin example. So, right. So let's say today, you know, I had really good rest last night. I woke up, I'm hydrated. I feel good. I may take that pill of aspirin and it might work the best of the peak of the whole dist distribution curve. You just, you know, in that clinical trial, 
Tonight, I'm exposed to asbestos while sleeping. Um, there's noise. I didn't eat well. I didn't sleep. I take that pill. It's not working for me tomorrow, right? Like, so it's 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 just this hyper personalization for so many contexts that we'll never study every combination of permutation. Mm-hmm. You know, I think we are so reductionist and so linear, like even just the one gene, one product, you know, here's the drug, like no way that's going to work on scale. So, um, so that's where the patient comes in with this, you know, call it personalization, configurability, stratification. <laughs> There's so many words for it, but like, they got to have a bit of a say and tune into their own situation to determine when to dial up or down a care plan, a dose, whatever it is, like, because it's well beyond the biological signature. Absolutely. I, and I'm, I'm optimistic that the, the youngins will see this. I think, I mean, it's going to be front and center. And I don't know if AI right now in medicine, I think, Personally, there's a lot of upside. There's a lot of ability to personalize. There's a lot of ability to uh, make healthcare more efficient. Yep. Where's your head at when it comes to AI and medicine? I mean, if you think of AI the way it's mostly being used with all the upside you described, it's just really, really fast, good statistical computing, right? And prediction. So, like, so anything that can do what us humans normally would have done, you know, before we used to do it manually and analog, then we got computers to hopefully, you know, stop doing that. And then now it's just going to do it way, way better, faster, smarter, cheaper. I think that's the bulk of the value right now on the table and what we're seeing. And that is great because we just talked about healthcare is 30 to 40% inefficient. So you want to tell the population, we're going to take all your taxes we're going to deliver this service. You're going to wait years for access to whatever, primary care, et cetera. And we're running it at, you know, we're losing 30 to 40 cents on every dollar of just our pure inefficiency. Like, so to me, like helping that side actually alone will save healthcare just from an access, you know, burnout of staff, et cetera. The next level though, is a bit of what you were hinting at where, The machines can do things as humans do, not like just the labor that takes time, like, you know, processing, you know, let's say all the patients in your roster, looking at all their data and and telling you, you know, these 25 are due for an A1C test, as an example, like an AI can just do that a little bit better and faster. But then the next level would be a bit what you're saying is finding patterns and signals that sure, if we had 35 PhD researchers you know, with unlimited computing time and power, they will find those patterns and signals eventually. (laughs) But now we can do it in 10 microseconds, you know. So I just think it'll help us be a lot smarter um, about more on the, not just clinical decision-making, which is huge, but even operational decision-making, scheduling. Like I look at home care, which I came from, and my mom works in home care. Like the number one reason people quit home care, all right, we can never keep staff, is because of how scheduling is done, how mm-hmm. their route is set up for, for the day. <laughs> because we use humans to do that, right? Mm. And AI should be doing that, no question. And you will change the lives of patients and these clinicians, and it has nothing to do with care. So as an example. And then the third will be the AI and the machines doing things as humans simply cannot do today. 
And I think those are neat and they're sexy. So for example, you know, Google's DeepMind, uh, you know, is publishing the results where they can scan, just look at the retina the way you could and find out age, gender, um, whether you smoke, A1C, blood pressure, like you can't do that as a clinician, period. <laughs> but the AI can, you know? So I think those are neat and they're sexy. I don't know that those will revolutionize medicine as much as the first two applications. Well, yeah, I, as a guy that, I mean, our research platform is on efficiency. I just, I'm with you, Zena. There's so many areas scheduling yeah. when it comes to note taking like you'll have a natural scribe like like there's a company that we saw there's a few actually now there's yeah, nuance dragon and then it's a very easy application to be honest yeah so like literally folks you'll be doing an interview with your nurse practitioner or your doctor in the in the whether it's virtual or in person and the machine will be listening and it will be able to provide a note for that uh, for that patient encounter. So your doc doesn't have to be typing away like crazy, like they normally are while you're trying to be into to tell, tell them about your deepest and darkest uh, secrets, maybe, but like yeah. you're there, they could fully engage looking you in the eye and, and, and do doctor things or, or, or health practitioner things. And you'll be, it'll be that experience will be that much better. And then, and then from not only note taking, but also a letter that you wanted to get to your family doctor could be automated or a project that we're working on. I hope no one steals this idea, but we're going to be, we've got a grant or no, we're applying for the grant. I don't want to be too presumptuous, but for a communication tool for patients that they're, as they're discharged. So they leave us and they get it in plain language. What happened to them in hospital? What their discharge instructions? Maybe it's even an, uh, an interactive video to say, Hey, this is, how you do your exercise. This is a food that you're supposed to eat. So much more efficient, way less likely to return to hospital or have return yeah. visits. The chatbot stuff, this is the other one I'm I, I'm interested to explore. Like say if you have, I don't know, like you're, 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 you got some minor symptoms that you're not sure if you should go to the emergency department or just see your family doctor or, or not worry about, you just throw it in this chatbot and before you know it, they're telling you to, Chill. Yeah, and and that's in clinical practice. I mean, that was applied across the entire NHS, right, for years. Is it? The company that did it just went bankrupt. But this stuff, like, this stuff's been around. Like, if you talk to researchers, clinicians, you know, that have had AI programs in medicine, like, they're 20, 30, 40 years. You know, the scribing that writes directly to your notes, that's been, a prototype's been around forever. So, I just think, yeah, it's getting better, faster, smarter, cheaper. Um, and again, the beauty of AI applications, unlike other digital software-based applications, is it gets better the more it's used. Mm. So you just have this curve of learning that you don't get, you know, with like a clinician or a patient, say, using an app or um, your, your electronic medical record, you don't get an exponential evolution. So but look, everything you just described in those, like it's a combination of, again, those first two benefits. One is just efficiencies, operational, which then frees up your capacity. But when your capacity is free as a clinician and as a patient, you you then can be more human. You can be more present. You can be so that, like it's a it's an indirect clinical benefit, but it's a huge one. And then just the terrible communication we have right now. It is um, 
it's like you're in a time warp in communication and healthcare. Uh, and you, you, you were hinting, Kwadjo, earlier, like the next generation of med students, nursing, et cetera, and patients, by the way, they're just not going to accept it. They're not going to accept that they communicate this way when they're ordering, you know, chicken dinner to their house at three in the morning on Uber Eats. <laughs> <laughs> and then, like, they have to fill out a clipboard again when they show up at a clinic. Like, it's just going to it's just not going to work. So they're not going to tolerate or they're not going to hang on to the past the way I think our current cadre of clinicians and patients do. I I mean, that to me is an ex, is an exciting time. I, I just think it's we're on the. The, the verge of like when you and I first got ex, exposed to the Internet, I think this is where this is what's happening in the world right now in terms of. AI and the like the equivalent to ChatGPT, the natural language processing, whatever the term is. Like, I, th- I really think we are on to something that people still don't fully fathom. Like, even outside of healthcare, I'm just saying, like, it's this is going to be a wild couple years. This is probably the most significant, let's call it, invention of humanity since either fire. Or electricity. Ooh, kind of like fire, electricity, internet. This, um, and then just another way I've heard it framed is, you know, what internet did was democratized access to information, mm-hmm. which is a big deal in the information age that we had a way to do it at scale, right? Um, and then uh, AI democratizes this uh, prediction, decision making mm-hmm. based on information. It's it's the next layer deep at scale. So it's a pretty big deal in an industry like healthcare where where the resources go are all based on some kind of a decision <laughs> based on information. <laughs> you know what I mean? 100%. Whereas, you know, in agriculture, other things, there's that as well, but not as much. Um, yeah, it's a pretty big deal. But what I love about AI and a lot of the other core technologies that will, you know, change society, education, mining, agriculture, retail, banking – is we're all getting upended by the same set of core technologies. So just like there's an AI and healthcare webinar or conference every minute of every day right now, there's the same for every other industry in AI, as an example. So blockchain, 3D printing, artificial reality, AI, um, voice. So the, um, what's great about that for our sector, Quajo, is the tools you use as a clinician and we have access to as a patient, the technologies that are the basis of our entire industry were two industries, pharma and medical devices, right? And equipment. And those two industries were relegated to the health sector. So, so you could only go as fast and develop as the R&D could get you that a, a few players chose to participate in, like your Pfizer's and your Medtronic's. You know, the entities developing AI, for example, for natural language processing are like companies like, I don't know, Microsoft. Well, they don't just serve healthcare. <laughs> so, so you're kind of amortizing the R&D costs of the platform technology across the whole world instead of financing it within the health sector, CIHR grants. You know what I mean? So I, mm-hmm. I think that's another reason we're going to have another kind of shift change of adoption unlike the past in medicine. So exciting. So exciting. The The other aspect that I, I, I'm curious to see how it plays out 
from a patient experience is that people will come to us with their diagnosis in hand. There's there's already a a, a question. I played played around with this app or this website about four months ago, actually now glass.io. And we had this rare presentation of a, of somebody in the ICU and I plugged in the, the data and it was the first thing on the differential, this rare, this rare disease. I was like, what? Like I, I honestly, I was floored. Like I was literally floored at this thing. I'm like, and then I started playing around with it. I'm like, it's already operating. No offense to the kids, but like as a, second year resident if i'm being honest yeah and this was like version 1.02 or whatever you know what i mean so like a year from now literally oh yeah patients will be like yeah i think i have uh this rare version of gillian barre because of the miller fisher fisher variant because of xyz i was like okay so like our role as clinicians even is going to be significantly different in the next year. To me, that's the biggest deal for the physician profession. Getting their head around, you know, the current estimate, by the way, Quadjo, is by 2030, patients will come to you with their diagnosis. And then, yeah, your job now is about navigating care plans, uh, coordinating, coaching, (laughs) maximizing the chance that whatever care plan is put in place delivers results. Hmm. not diagnosing, mm-hmm. you know, maybe adjusting when new results come in and helping be a partner. But yeah, that's, but we think 2030 patients will come to you with a diagnosis. Yeah. It, it, this is going to be a mind F for a lot of docs. I think where, where this is, I mean, some of the, some of the specialties, like that's their main objective, like say yeah. neurologists, like the, the, one of their main, attractions or why you see them is to help diagnosis these, these, these symptoms. And yeah, this is, this is going to be a completely different landscape. It's, it's, I mean, and like the thing I'm a bit anxious about is like doctors, we're bullheaded and we're slow to adapt. Yep. Like just seeing how we, how we take this on, which should be very interesting. Uh, Cause I mean, yeah. And I think what will happen is a few things because access to these, you know, to um, information is democratized and then to prediction or decision-making is now getting democratized like the app, you just, the IO. Um, I think we will be able to go elsewhere if the clinical resources offered to us, particularly when it's um, a universal system, like in Canada, if they don't get it, and, and my needs aren't being met. Like it's my kid who has cancer and I'm not accepting this clinician who's stuck in the stone ages. We will be able to pretty easily find it elsewhere at a very low marginal cost. I think that's the difference that democratizing things because you have massive price compression. So, you know, um, I remember my former boss used to say, like, we're not that far from when Apple will offer you a $9.99 a month subscription to unlimited ask access to healthcare services. And they actually did pilot that business model. It didn't work, but it'll come back. Well, I mean, I spend $35 a month on Spotify for my family, right? For, I, I, for, for all my kids and, you know, everybody. There's a lot kids. of people on my account. 
three kids. Okay. My brother. Anyway, the point is, <laughs> like, you know, like ten dollars a month. I mean, my daughter spends that on her stupid bubble tea in one go. So I, that's, I think, going to be the the challenge. I think for Canada is. And it's not that different from education, because I know you're involved in research and education, is we've created these institutions and infrastructures that have a very difficult ability to stay with the times. But yet there's needs. Patients need care. Students want an education experience that's relevant for the 21st century. And so despite that, we will go find it somewhere else. So I coach a lot of physicians who are on the side doing courses in AI at MIT, or they're learning how to do design, or they're learning how to do entrepreneurship, not from their med school. (laughs) Like they're doing it on the side because their med school doesn't get it. Their med school can't adapt curriculum. So. Wow. Wowie. Um, Okay. I got, I got a few things here because I a hundred percent agree with you, by the way, that the access to care and access to, to, to expertise, expertise are going to be democratized and it's going to be just like at a click. I don't know how far away we are from that, but I'm curious, I kind of jumped on this a little bit, but not really. Like, where do you see privatization coming in when it comes to like improving healthcare delivery and, and dealing with many of these issues? How, how do you, like, where do you? What's your prediction as a futurist on the design? Like, how how it actually is going to look? Yeah. So I think let's be really clear. As I find in Canada, we've made a massive mistake, and the Canadian Medical Association, in my view, has only now propagated it with this word privatization and the word private care, because there's really two definitions of it. One is a bit of what you hinted at. You have a a, a public good that's publicly financed, i.e. I pay with my taxes. And, you know, a health system is a steward of those resources. Um, and uh, and then sometimes uh, the delivery of those services is outsourced to a private agent. And that private agent could be a nonprofit, right? They're just not a public agent. It's not a public servant doing the work. It's a private citizen doing the work. That's part of an organization that's privately held with its own board of directors. It could be a nonprofit. That's like most home care, um, a lot of nursing homes, or it could be a for-profit because that's their business model. So that's that. So that already happens. I don't know the latest data, but it's probably to the tune of 30 to 40% of all delivery of publicly funded care in Canada is done by a private agent, fully private agent. And then more will be like hospitals and stuff that are parapublic, if you will, but they're really private. They have their own board. Okay, that's very different from you and I paying out of pocket to a private entity to give us services or care uh, to meet our needs uh, outside of the public fund purse. Like they're just two completely different worlds. So tell me which of the privatization you are asking me about. Is it? publicly funded, privately delivered, or privately paid for and privately delivered? So I think like my humble, my humble opinion is you're going to get both in the future. Like, I think. We have them both right now, buddy. Yeah. But I guess, I guess what I mean is like scaled. (laughs) Like, I think you're going to see it. You're going to see more of it and it's going to be front and center because I don't see 
and people could judge me for whatever they want. I don't see a way out of this this issue without an element of privatization. I no, there's yeah, private pay. You pri- mean all yes. So yeah, yeah, I should yeah. use the word. I just think what yeah, do you call the first delivery, example? Yeah. Just so I can use the right. Uh, this is, the first one is just. Privately delivered, publicly paid care, right? That's when you're, you know, St. Elizabeth does home care. Yeah. Yeah, that that is a no-brainer for me, and it's already happening. But the the option B where people are paying out of pocket to get their hip done, I think is is going to happen. I know it's already happening, like when you go from other provinces, but I I personally think. So I just think on the private pay, privately delivered, Um, Let's be very, very clear, the facts of Canada. The only two services that legally, other than in Quebec, maybe a little bit of Alberta, um, you know, you and I cannot privately go pay for and procure ourselves for our own needs is physician services and really the services of a physician that are OHIP billable, let's say, in Ontario, (laughs) and hospital services. And again, only hospital services are medically necessary and uh, funded by our health insurance plans. That's it, buddy. Like everything else is fair game. Mental health, nursing homes, dentistry, physiotherapy. In most civilized health systems in the world, uh, oh, sorry, your drugs, pharmacare. A lot of lab tests. Like in most places in the world, those count even in the publicly insured, but not in Canada. So, so sure, a hip replacement, uh, a primary care visit today is not at scale available for private pay by you and I out of our pocket, but it is available at scale for private pay when you're, you know, it's funded by a third party insurer, right? That's that's Canada. That's what we do with private insurance. So. We already have it. Yeah. Um, look, there's a great op-ed in the Globe and Mail this week. I don't know what the timing of this publication, but, you know, like, just do the math. If you're going to tax the public, and Canada's among the highest taxed citizens in the world already, like, we're kind of at our limits. So you're going to finance healthcare delivery through taxation. Demand for those services is going up. Uh you're running it at 30, 40% inefficiency and you can't get out of it because you're locked in whatever unions and that. So what's the only answer? The only answer (laughs) is either raise taxes. So what will we get at 80% of our taxes? Are you and I ready to do that to work our ass off and then lose 80% of it to this thing that runs at 30 to 40% efficiency? Or do you have to find alternative financing sources? And unlike Norway, and Saudi Arabia and Libya, who made a ton of money off oil in the ground and packed it away into a sovereign wealth fund so they don't need to worry about taxing the public to finance the public good. We didn't do that in Canada. We have no reserve. So, like, and then if we don't raise the taxes and we don't offer a private exit valve, then the only option is exactly what we have today, which is waiting lists, rationing, delisting services, uh, and a lot of people going without or getting very substandard care. Like that's your options. Yeah, and to me, you got to look at. We, we got to have a certain standard and expectations in our country. Okay, like for healthcare delivery, everyone should have a family doc. I don't give a damn or primary care physician. 
we shouldn't have to wait two years in your 60s or 70s to get your hip done while you have X amount of quality of life years. So, you know, when it comes to the risks of, say, the the option B of people paying out of pocket for their, their care, I think if I'm in charge, I'd put as many measures to reduce the risk of it getting out of hand. For example, making sure docs could only work a specific amount of time outside outside the public uh, sphere. Same with nurses, so you don't have a mass exodus of nurses that, that are working in the hospital to do this private private uh, 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 clinics. Like I think you got to be proactive and try and mitigate the downside. Otherwise, you're going to be reactive and things will get out of hand. You'll get the doctors only working in one in the public sphere. Like all this kind of concerns were that, yeah. you know, so like, I think we got to be smart and, and act now. And that, and those, uh, we call them guardrails. That's exactly what other jurisdictions do. It's like, no one thought of this, right? I'll just give an example. You know, I lived and worked in the Netherlands for a year. So think about it in the Netherlands, all insurance. So the, the act of, um, you know, paying for services, health insurance, uh, it's, it's a publicly delivered system, uh, publicly financed system from your taxes, but the insurance program is outsourced to private agents, for-profit companies, okay? So like we have OHIP, that's a government entity as a company, if you will. That's not how it is in the Netherlands. <laughs> There's private companies and they have to go out there and vie for your business as a citizen to, to do your insurance scheme through them. So it's kind of a bit of a consumer. However, Unlike United Healthcare and others who like profits are crazy, no matter what happens, the CEO can still make millions and millions of dollars. In the Netherlands, if you want to be with an insurance company, a private insurance company in healthcare, um, there's a cap on CEO salary. There's a cap on profit. You know, like there are ways to set the conditions under which the public will pay a private agent. Um so that you protect, you know, those downside risks. It's is not a, it's not a f- free for all. Wow. No, I didn't know this about the Netherlands. So like say, but is there still, but the healthcare delivery, is there still like, is it all public orthopedic surgeons then? Or is there, there's still the private, potentially private uh, care delivery too? Well, I don't know what you call private uh, or public, but like they would work at a hospital just like, you you know, like a here and those hospitals are private entities just like here in Ontario, Mm -hmm. right? You have your own board at your hospital. It's a private corporation. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so, and then those clinicians, I believe you guys contract with your hospitals. You don't, you're not employees of them. So that's all. So I'm just saying the funds to pay for that orthopedic surgery are public funds. You pay for them through your taxes in the Netherlands, Mm -hmm. but the payment model and the, is done in the contracting with that orthopedic surgeon is through your insure private insurer. Right. And I had to shop around. I had to pick which one I wanted to go with. Um, you know, there's some premiums, there's co-pays, there's stuff like that. But, um, uh, I'm just saying that that model in the Netherlands, I found where they still vilify the most, the private sector is in pharma. Mm -hmm. They're just not happy with, 
um, you know, this monopoly of these private agents, it's very hard for other types of entities to make drugs at scale yeah. that work. So that's why the industry exists. It's just like, I find they're very vilified, the pharma, uh, whereas, you know, the private sector in, 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 in insurance and stuff like that, not vilified so, because they've got guardrails. So let me ask you this then, is there a, a, a country that you think is doing it right right now? Like, is there something that comes to mind or like, even if it's maybe not a country, but maybe as you mentioned, you like what you're doing the Netherlands with the the insurances. But is there is there somewhere that we can aspire to be like? I mean, I'd say there's a couple things that uh, aspects of it, like it, um, that I think would work well. So if you look at Medicare in the U.S., so this is a publicly financed uh, insurance scheme for people over 65, right? It's one point, I don't know, four trillion dollars. Quadro, like that's five times the size of Canada's public, maybe six times the size of Canada's publicly funded healthcare systems. So, so Medicare is really good, I think, at using their purchasing power because wow, is that a market everybody wants to be in because you're guaranteed, you know, there's a payer for it, um, to use that to set the conditions under which they will pay. So they can say, you know, we're going to buy results. Or they'll say we're disproportionately going to finance, uh, you know, primary care if you do it in people's homes or a nursing home at home or whatever, you know, faster, um, lower um, uh, readmissions to hospital after that hip surgery. So so I really like how Medicare uses their, their money uh, to drive innovation, true innovation, care model innovation and payment model innovation at a scale like we don't do a quarter of what they, not even a fraction of what they do. So that's one. The other is more these blended public private financing models. England has it. Germany has it. France has it. Um, you need a source of capital into the system. Uh, and there are people who can pay. I mean, to me, uh, Quadro, I don't know about you, but you mentioned, you know, um, everybody should have a doctor. The, the analogy everybody's been using lately is like, you wouldn't think twice that your kid can't get a spot in public school, right? It's just not a thing in Canada. Like, but we do that with primary care. However, there are people I know, and you probably know, maybe even yourself, whose kids go to private school. They're paying taxes to the public system, but their kids are in private school. And we're not like clutching our pearls and riding in the streets, right? And wow, is education an essential public good, just like healthcare, <laughs> Like you just kind of figure it out. So, um, so anyway, I think those models I like. And then the last would be the models I see, particularly in Africa, and then some low resource economies, even in Canada. Like I find I have a lot of time for Nova Scotia, for example, where like they're not like gushing in resources. They have access problem, so they're just very nimble and they get to the point and just get on with things. They're not trying to protect the past because there's just too much work to, to be done. <laughs> Uh, I, I like those um, kind of agile, quick to innovate um, environments. You gotta be, you gotta be agile. You gotta be swift on it, and uh, you'll be that much further ahead. Listen, Zaina, as always, you deliver, whether that's <laughs> private or public. Um, but uh, <laughs> bad joke. Uh, but this was awesome. I know, I know, this will be very inspiring for folks that to to realize that. We can do this in terms of making our healthcare system more sustainable. The the future of healthcare can be bright, and I think it's going to be a lot of 
young up and coming healthcare leaders, innovators, even outside the, the, the realm of like physician, nurses, et cetera, because this is, as we talked about with the AI, like this is, this is being amortized. Like we're, we're all getting people yeah. getting a, potentially a piece of this. So where can people get a hold of Zena or learn more about Zena? Um, a few, so I'm kind of Zena Inc. now, right? I've got a few different no, jobs. No that doubt, mentioned. no doubt. So- yeah, so LinkedIn is probably the best way. And then my stream of consciousness comes out on Twitter, like just cool stuff I'm seeing or I want to comment about. And then I'm just often speaking. You can find me on uh, on stuff. Um, you know, the, the only other group I'd say I'd call out to, I don't know who your listener base is, is like uh, you and me as citizens, patients, families. <laughs> wow, can we shift this too? Like just my, my call to everyone is demand more. Mm. Demand different and wherever you have the option, walk with your feet and go get it wherever you can find the right care team if you can. Um, Because until we have a bit of a revolution of Canadians who just are not going to take it, none of this is going to happen. It's just not. Like all the answers are here. We just talked about there is no shortage of solutions to fix Canadian healthcare. Um, We haven't demanded it as citizens. Like not to digress too much, Zena, but I feel like there's a an apathy coefficient that I've never seen before over the last like during the pandemic. I saw it like the there's just less like aside from the George Floyd time. After that, I found there's just people are apathetic. They'll just take it as it comes, and to put in effort to create change is yeah. There's not much juice left in the tank. Yeah. You know, there's a lot of other juice got taken away from all the other crap. Um, but, um, you know, there's this and climate change. Like those are the two two things that are going to fundamentally threaten our, our ways of living. So I think people will get angry enough. Yeah. Um, yeah. We just, we got to get to that boiling point or whatever the expression is. But as usual, Zena, you killed it. Thank you so much for joining us. Really appreciate it. That was fun. Yeah, folks. Tell me that episode wasn't fresh. That interview wasn't dynamic. Tell me it doesn't give you a positive outlook on our future in healthcare. I love having Zena on. She's going to be, I don't care what anybody says, she's going to be a recurring guest, folks. She's a baller. She's full of knowledge. Let's be honest with you. We need more of that. If you enjoyed that, please leave us any comments at quadcast99 at gmail.com. Leave a five-star rating. Follow us on TikTok, Instagram, YouTube, Facebook, Twitter, at Quadcast. Jump on our newsletter. Jump on our community at quadcast.subject.com. All things healthcare solutions all on one site. Y'all gonna love it. All right, people, I hope you're feeling a little bit more jump in your step after that episode. Thanks for listening. Talk real soon. Peace.